0: you're listening to the co-main event podcast and now your hosts ben folks and chad dundas that's right you're listening to another episode of the co-main event mixed martial arts podcast i'm chad dundas alongside ben folks as always We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, did you make it out to the Western Montana Fair?
1: Man, you know I did.
0: Yeah, we did too. We went on Saturday when it was like about 95 degrees during the day, and then later on I looked on the Facebook and I saw people posting videos of the uh, quarter-sized hail that was out there driving people inside. So I guess you could say we played it okay. Although, man, it was hot. It was hot to be out there.
1: You know, I was there just in time to lit- witness a fair band. Uh, I'm going to say working through some stuff. I, this didn't seem like the version of themselves where they consider themselves a finished product. I'll say that.
0: What kind of band are we talking here? Like high school marching
1: band? or oh, like no. We're talking adults playing contemporary country hits.
0: Okay, right on. Right on, man.
1: I mean, there seemed to have been some disagreements about maybe what key we were supposed to be okay. in, Things like that. <laughs> also, uh, the, there was like a dude singer playing the guitar and like a female singer like who's just a singer. And just in the time that I was overhearing them while I waited for the little train that my children were on to come back around. The Northwest Express. Yeah. Just in that time, I heard them both make what seemed to be contradictory requests for the sound mixing guy. And I was like, man, I don't know if this band is going to stay together. I don't know if they're going to make it. I had some concerns.
0: Hit up any rides? No. Me and my uh, four-year-old rode in the belly of a dragon that uh, went in a circle and spun around. That was about as wild as it got for us. Although I will say this. My two-year-old, he really established his personality trait of really wanting to go on a ride until after you've handed the tickets to the carny and then walked around and he got like a until he got like a really close-up look at the giant dog he was about to ride in and then he was like nope not doing it so uh i don't know if you've ever tried to talk to a carny about how you should get your tickets back but that's a one-sided conversation my friend
1: (laughs) is carny an offensive term do they consider that offensive is that a
0: slur to them i mean they're carnival workers right like isn't that isn't that just like a contraction? Do you think that
1: they would describe themselves that way? Like if they, if you're asked like, hey, what do you do? I'm a carny.
0: Most of the people I saw out there working the rides at the fair didn't seem like they were going to craft too many arguments about what what uh, what you what nomenclature you applied to their working conditions. They're
1: just not even going to remove the moral blur light from their lips when they tell you to kiss their ass? Pretty much, yeah.
0: <laughs> I tried to uh, get our three tickets back exactly one time. And after that, I was just like... Buyer beware. That's the kind of situation we're in here.
1: Man, you know that guy has a blackjack in the pocket of his jean shorts if you get too uppity.
0: Oh, I turned the charm on, my friend. I wasn't trying to catch a blackjack upside the head, walking around the Western Montana Fair looking like Mike Perry.
1: See, I wonder if Chad Dundas turning the charm on (laughs) is like when you think you're smiling for photographs.
0: killing it in the face-making game all the time. Absolutely. (laughs) And then
1: afterwards, your friends see you and they're like, eh. That's, at best, that's a grimace.
0: I mean, this is... I think we've talked about this on the show before, but this is why it's absolutely true that when I have to have an author photo, I have to show it to, a, uh, let's say, a focus group of friends to be like, which in which one of these pictures am I making the most acceptable face?
1: You're like those like autistic kids who have to look at the... They they keep showing them the pictures of people making different faces, and they can't quite match the emotion, except only for yourself. Right, because I'm like,
0: like, I was thinking about uh, this one, and everyone's like, oh, God, no. No, no, not (laughs) that one. Anyone but that one.
1: Show me the picture of myself in which I am conveying happiness. Hey kids, a great way to look fresh and
0: toss a little money in the CME coffers is to pick up a Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirt or a Dundasso t-shirt. Those are available on demand all the time, whenever you want them. Over at CottonBureau.com, just go over to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. School's about to start up again. You want your kid looking fresh on the first day of school? Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirt. That's all I'm saying.
1: I don't think it's a great idea. I'll say that. I know that it runs counter to our financial interests. Not a great idea.
0: I mean, it sends a message. Your kid is going
1: to show up on the first day and be like, what, you got a dress code? Yeah. I'm going to push it to the limit. The message it sends is, send me home. Send me home with an angry note for my parents. Pushing the
0: limit to the limit. We got music again this week from our friend Dion Rodriguez, a producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7 and again... That's the word beats with a Z. Beat. Three rounds as usual in the Co-Main Event Podcast this week. In round number one, Mike Perry got one specific part of his shit broke Saturday night against the silent assassin Vicente Luque. Somehow seemed worse even than getting his whole shit broke. And in round number two, are we unreasonably excited for Diaz versus Pettis? I don't know. Depends on what you consider reasonable, you fucking nerd. Now stand back while Ben does this fucking nunchucks demonstration. Oh man, if you could see him. Yeah. People in the live stream, they saw it. In round number three, should we be protecting our hearts from the possibility that Daniel Cormier might lose to Stipe Miocic this weekend? All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece you know, of... Le- before
1: you get into this, you know who legit is good at the nunchucks? And I was surprised to learn this via the gram. Who? Dan Hardy.
0: Well, that doesn't make me make me that surprised. Like, Dan Hardy's a, he's like, he's going to have a big samurai sword on his wall at home.
1: Yeah, true. But, like, I'm going to show you the video later on Instagram because he's just like, oh, yeah, I'm just working out with a set of my practice chucks. And you're like, you look like you're in some fucking ninja movie right now, man.
0: And I it's not easy.
1: I, I mean, as a guy who owns a set of practice chucks, even with a practice chucks, Chad, it's not easy to look as
0: cool as Dan Hardy looks doing it. Dan Hardy, to me, is the quintessential fighter where when you interview him after it's over, you're like, that guy is way too reasonable and smart to be a professional mixed martial arts fighter.
1: And he ended up in the commentary side of the game, which I think is better for everybody.
0: Including him, and he's probably Nunchuck's... But uh, you're right. I mean, if
1: there's... Like, he's just... Everything about him screams a martial arts nerd. Martial arts nerd who can act with actual, like, pro-athlete ability. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's going to separate him from a lot of the other nerds out there.
1: Like, you... What are the odds that Dan Hardy, like you go to Dan Hardy's house and you're like, hey, uh, I know this is a weird request. You got any throwing stars? He's going to be like, oh, He's going to pull a fucking you know drawer what? open, man, on, and I that had, drawer is going to be full of throwing stars. I had some around here somewhere. Hold on. Let me, let me check. And yeah, he's going to have some throwing it's stars. It's like the junk drawer at everybody else's house. Yes. Dan yeah. Hardy pulls it
0: open. It's nothing but stars.
1: He doesn't have any AA batteries, doesn't have any duct tape, but he got some, some throwing stars for you.
0: First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from the former president, a wig, I believe, James K. Polk. Okay,
1: good to hear from him.
0: One-term president for the Whig Party.
1: You know why you gotta shit on him like that? He comes, he brings a question to the co of Event Podcast you gotta point out as a one-term president. I mean... You How many in. terms have you served, Chad <laughs> Dundas? True, true. Do not criticize the president
0: unless you have also been president. <laughs> from James simple. K. Polk this week, A lot is being made of Valentina's boring performance against Carmouche. Is that really fair? Wasn't it just a couple months ago we were all wringing our hands over the health of Jessica I after the bullet booted her in the face? I don't know about you guys, but Valentina bought herself a couple of shaky performances with that one in my book, Discourse.
1: Okay, that's a fair argument. And I don't blame Valentina alone for this one.
0: It takes two to tango, as they say.
1: Yes. Well, it surprised me. I'll say this. Liz Carmouche's approach to this fight surprised
0: me. You know what I, I was, thought was surprised. You know what I thought was interesting about it was she came out of the corner like a house of fire in the first round. Like, okay, I'm going to come out here and take it to Shevchenko, yeah. throwing the leg kicks, uh, firing off punching combinations, and like slowly she just started to inch away from Shevchenko as the fight went on. And then by the middle, uh, she's not close. On a lot of these punching combinations. She is punching someone who is standing three feet in front of Valentina Shevchenko.
1: Well, and I know it's easy to sit here and say after the fact, here's what you should have done. When you weren't the one risking your whole shit getting broke by being in there. And when you have the benefit of hindsight and everything. But I don't know how you go into the fourth and the fifth round here as Liz Carmouche, And you're not thinking to yourself, you know what? This is the last shot I'm going to get in all likelihood at a UFC title. This is kind of it. Yeah. If I want to leave a different narrative other than the person who came really close against Ronda Rousey in the first women's fight, I have to really go for broke now. And I have to pull out all the stops and really just take, take my chances, whatever happens, and try to make something happen. Because if I don't do it, it's this, this carousel is never coming around for me again. I don't know how that's not in the back of your mind. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it is, right? And I think it just speaks to, like,
0: how hard it must be to get in there and do the damn thing against someone like Valentina Shevchenko, who frankly, like, the biggest criticism I feel like you can toss out of Shevchenko, and hey, this is her third fight since December, and her second successful title defense of the summer, as James K. Polk points out, so...
1: Yeah, maybe we should tamp down the criticism a little bit. Whatever you say about his his administration. Reasonable man, James yeah. K. Polk.
0: Like, the biggest criticism I think that you can throw out of Shevchenko is that she's so goddamn good and technically superior to most of the people that she's fighting that it can be somewhat frustrating that she's not doing more. Right. And, like, once you get in there against her, I'm sure Liz Carmouche came in with, like, a game plan and all of this training, some of which was done underwater. Uh, and, like, you want to do it? And you just can't. You just can't do it. Because she's just too technically good. She's out there shutting down everything you want to try to do.
1: Yeah. I I can see that. And maybe it is just a combination of Valentina Shevchenko was, like you said, very active. She might be a little bit worn down at this point. Also, she's got the belt. And she knows the most important thing is keeping the belt. Staying the champion. Being able to call those shots. And staying at the top. So... For her, if she realizes, I'm winning this fight pretty easily. I don't have to take too many chances. It would be nice to get a finish. I don't absolutely need it. And I agree with James K. Polk here that when you go and kick somebody upside their damn head and put them to sleep in a way that kind of frightens us all, you have bought yourself a little leeway. You get to put in a couple mediocre performances after that. And we, we should let you slide a little bit. I agree with that. And the part I just don't understand is Liz Carmouche's side of it because yeah. you have to know that this is, you know, especially in a five-round fight. I can see it more in a three-round fight where it can go by so quickly before you realize uh, time's pretty much up here. A five-round fight, you've got more chances to come back to the corner and realize this is slipping away and it's never going to come back again.
0: Yeah. Um, to me, I wanted to say one thing about the, the overall reaction to this fight. Because this was not a good fight. No. This was not a great fight.
1: As, I would say among the worst UFC title fights.
0: As we found out, the third fewest significant strikes landed in a five-round UFC title fight of all time. So, like, the pace here, at least in terms of, of striking, was not out of this world. I do want to say, though, that and I, in a way I feel like a broken record. But I also feel like right now in this sport, all paths lead back. To this topic in some way. And that is the UFC's live event schedule. Like, one of the reasons that I feel like the reactions to this fight were so extreme... Was that anything halfway meaningful right now on this schedule... Has to carry so much goddamn weight. Yeah. Because when you're doing 42 events a year... In the middle of August, you're going down down there to Uruguay... For an event where... We're not totally sure why we're doing it, but it's, you know, this is what we get paid for at this point. If you're the UFC, $300 million a year for a certain number of events and hours of content. So you got a 13 fight card in the middle of August down there in Uruguay. And for the most part, most of the people who tune in are going to be interested in two things. You're going to be interested in the main event and you're going to be interested in Mike Perry. Now, you broaden the circle a little bit. Some people are interested in the Bricklayer versus Vulcan Osdemir. Some people are probably interested in Rodolfo Vieira. Some people, like the two guys hosting this podcast, are interested in capital G guy Cyril Gan. Uh Been on the Cyril Gahn train since day one. Which was, like, last week. Thursday. Yeah. found out about him last Thursday. Uh, so, like... You got a thirteen fight card, and the only reason we are tuning in, we are we are budgeting time out of our lives to watch Valentina Shevchenko versus Liz Carmouche. Whereas yesteryear, Valentina Shevchenko versus Liz Carmouche probably would have been on a pay per view. It would have been a co main event to Cormier versus Miocic, and it would not have been great. And we all would have been like, "Well, that wasn't great." Let's move on. Let's move on. Yeah. But now it's like this is the only damn reason we showed up to watch this thing. Yeah. And so when it's not good. It's really
1: not good. Yeah. I also think maybe some, like, to return to what is going through Liz Carmouche's mind, I think some of it is maybe a stylistic thing. That Liz Carmouche is the kind of fighter who, if she gets behind, way behind on a scorecard, and you say to her, you got to go out there and finish, she doesn't have too many paths to do that, especially against a fighter like Valentina Shevchenko. If she doesn't start off pretty even and, you know, taking some of these rounds, by the time you get to the fourth or the fifth, she's kind of like a like an option team in football, where if they get down by four touchdowns, they don't have a, like a thing in their playbook where you end up scoring three touchdowns inside of five minutes. They just, that's not really what they do. They need to keep it close and need, or like get an early lead in order to have a chance. Maybe that was some of the thing you just deal with when you put together this style of fight, like these, these two kinds of fighters in this, this title fight.
0: So Valentina Shevchenko is two successful title defenses into her women's flyweight title reign. And you start looking around these rankings. What are you going to do with her next?
1: The thing I don't have any interest in is another Amanda Nunes fight.
0: See, I started out there. That's where I started my psychological journey. Okay.
1: And then I was like... Then you took some mushrooms. You had a psychedelic experience. I
0: started to look around at the contender lists in both of those divisions. And I started to think... Do I, would I rather watch Valentina Shevchenko fight Kaitlyn Chukagian? Would I rather watch Amanda Nunez fight Jermaine Durandamy? Or would I rather bite the bullet and watch these two champions fight each other for a third time? And a third time. A third and Amanda time. Amanda Nunez has won both. She has. The second one was a somewhat controversial split decision. But all the same, I eventually talked myself into the idea that really the only thing you can do with these,
1: these crazy kids is to have them fight again. And then what? Because you're just kicking the can down the road, man. You you're going you to have to like, uh, confront these problems in both divisions. Well, arguably three different divisions here. I guess you're hoping all, that like a, a Conor
0: McGregor-style figure shows up who can make weight in all of these women's weight divisions and just sets the world on fire.
1: Because right now, it's slim Pickens all over the place here. I mean, if you're praying for that kind of miracle, God help you. I just don't think you're you're only delaying the problem at that sense, and I'm just sick of the champion versus champion thing. I mean, at, at no time in MMA history has champion versus champion stuff meant less than it seems to mean right
0: now. We have admittedly crossed over into the the law of diminishing returns for sure in terms of like the super fight. At the same time, man, Shevchenko versus Chukagian, where are you going to put that?
1: Let's UFC not, Montevideo too. Let's give. Valentina Shevchenko the rest of the year off. I mean,
0: that, yeah, nothing wrong with that.
1: And then let's try to do some business in that division while she's resting. Tell her, you know, take a vacation, uh, go shooting, do some dancing with your sister, and we'll call you when we got something for you.
0: Next question this week comes to us from Skank Marden.
1: Oh, yes. Fictional character from the film Mystery Alaska. You see that one? Hockey players? I think so.
0: Not for a Russell long period of time. Yeah,
1: they end up playing a game on a pond against the New York Rangers.
0: We are starting to get pretty specific with our references yep. here. Mm-hmm. Skank Martin writes. So, Cyril gone. That guy probably lifts some weights, right? Hammers those, hammers some of those big tires out in the gym parking lot. No, oh, doubt. for sure.
1: Yeah, he definitely hammers the tires.
0: He's only four zero, but he looked good against Rafael Pessoa, Pessoa on Saturday. And as far as heavyweights go, he's rather youthful at twenty-nine years old. Is it too soon to actually get excited about a true heavyweight prospect, or am I just setting myself up for the inevitable disappointment? I would say, let's get excited about Cyril Gone. Why not, man?
1: You know what else? I bet he, I bet he knows where they keep some kettlebells.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Looks like he does some kettlebell stuff. He's doing the American swings and the Russian swings. Yeah, Both probably, kinds. Uh, probably known to pick up a cable every now and then. You think he's doing that thing with the big ropes? Yeah, so oh, shit. for sure for sure. doing the rope thing. You don't look like that without doing the rope thing.
0: So Cyril Gaughan, the training partner of Francis Ngannou, at least at one point, from over there in France, coached by Fernand Lopez, the same guy who brought Francis Ngannou to the UFC, uh, professional kickboxer, I'm led to believe, makes it to the UFC after three pro fights, which tells you a little something about his upside. No matter what division you're fighting in, you're probably not making it to the UFC after three fights unless they think you can do some special things. Hell of a highlight reel coming into this fight, if you watched it. Some of the stuff that the UFC Twitter account tweeted out, where he's throwing spinning back fists and just beating the stuffing out of people in the smaller events. Did not expect him to win via arm triangle choke. Nope. But at the same time, first round stoppage for the big man. He looks very athletic. Obviously a little bit dangerous on the feet. And uh, yeah, man, like, like we always say about the heavyweight division, give me somebody and I will get excited about
1: it. Yeah. Especially if they look the part. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, you watch him move. I always get excited about a heavyweight that can move like that and has those kind of striking skills. And then if you go out there and pull off a submission on somebody, even though it did seem like maybe uh, your boy Raphael wanted out of there. You think like maybe he was like, here's the choke? Put it in your back pocket? If not, it's hard to kind of explain how he gets caught in that choke right then and then doesn't really do anything for defense. Because it, it seemed like when you're watching that choke be applied, you're like, this, this doesn't seem like it's going to work. This seems like hopeful. And then he taps and you're like, well, okay. That seemed like maybe a situation where you were just ready to be done. I don't know. Well, right. he
0: tried the right hand and it didn't work.
1: Right. He tried the right hand.
0: Remember, well, dude, you, you remember this fight, right? Like, that was basically the only thing Rafael Pessoa had. He was just like uh, picking a, a right hand up off the ground and throwing it from uh, Peru in the general vicinity of Cyril Anytime Cyril Gaon stepped toward him, he's firing that right hand. He's spin kicking and stuff like that. Was he got, he got some, I just remember some, something the right like hands. that.
1: But uh, the question is always going to be with somebody like Cyril Gaon, like, okay put him up against a wrestler mm-hmm. and let's see what happens. And, and I'm not going to say don't do that. I'm just going to say we don't have to do it yet. Let's have some fun first. You know, let's, let's, let's explore the opportunities out there before we just go straight into like somebody who's going to blast double him up against the fence.
0: No, I agree. Let's see what we can put together with this guy. I saw him casually mentioning that he would like to test his skills against somebody like Greg Hardy. After okay. This fight. Okay.
1: I mean, there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of people out there that we're, that you can match him up against without having to get right into somebody who is just a really effective grinder of a wrestler in the heavyweight division. So that's all I'm saying. Let's let's have a little bit of fun before we find out if we have to ruin our own party.
0: Next question this week comes from Robert Morella, who I believe is Gorilla Monsoon. <laughs> Of course of course good to hear from him deceased former professional wrestler and commentator
1: and you know we appreciate that he feels that we're we're friends enough that he can just use his regular name yeah he doesn't he's not need to play K with us he doesn't need to drop the I, by the way I'm gorilla monsoon card you know that's what you need to do if you want to get a reservation at a fancy restaurant but with us man he's just Robert Morella.
0: Did I ever tell you about when I saw Vanilla Ice on the dance floor at a club in Vegas in the early 2000s? And I said, hey, how's it going? I'm Chad. And he said, he shook my hand and he said, what's up, man? I'm Vanilla. <laughs> he said Vanilla? Yep. Not even Ice? Nope. Vanilla.
1: Are you sure it was actually him?
0: 100% positive. I believe there's a, a, a still photograph of the two of us together kicking around in the archives somewhere.
1: Also, so you, you're at a club in Las Vegas. No, you, Vegas.
0: Yes, Las Vegas.
1: You see Vanilla Ice on the dance floor. We're out there together. And you're going, you know what? I should go up and introduce myself. I I should say, hi, I'm Chad. It was a casual situation. It wasn't, we weren't
0: seriously dancing. (laughs) At any point, anyone could strike up a conversation with anyone else. And get a picture taken.
1: (laughs) At least that's how you remember
0: it. Here's what Gorilla Monsoon writes. Look, I get it. We all love Glavey by Booba. It's a song for the ages. It's a pearl of the entire booba opus. But are we <laughs> not in agreement that Vulcan Uzdemir should be walking out to J.W. Lennon's working class hero? And I quote, as soon as you're born, they make you feel small by giving you no time instead of it all. Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all. Use the amped up Green Day version. Lots of cymbal crashing. Now that's a walkout, am I right? Well, you know, give credit to Vulcan Ozdemir for still tapping his wrist. When they say Vulcan, no time Ozdemir, he's still doing it. It's he's a good, still... it's
1: a good gimmick. Yeah, no, I agree. It's uh, there are a lot worse gimmicks out I there. I mean,
0: especially if you're about to go out there and lay the bricklayer out via KO. Oh man, you got no time, man.
1: He put a hurting on the bricklayer. He
0: really did. Second round KO, four minutes and thirty-one seconds into the second round. That knee, it's the year of the knee. People be training this. Throwing that knee up the oh, middle? Oh, really?
1: You think you think people are, th- are training yeah. knee strikes? I think it might be huh. something that
0: people are starting huh. to pay some attention okay. to in the gymnasium. Interesting. In their during their pre- preparatory time. It's
1: a very intriguing theory you have.
0: I mean, you know the copycat league out here, right? One guy starts landing the knee, suddenly everybody's. Somebody got it. Somebody's going,
1: "Huh? You know, I never really considered striking my opponent in the head with my knee. Given that we're out here in the sport with the eight limbs, maybe I should start throwing the knee. It's so crazy; it just might work. And people are landing it. He hit. The bricklayer with some monster shots here before the finish. Yeah. It's kind of a testament to Alir Latifi's toughness that he made it. Because you could see, he, his face was starting to look bad. He was looking like he just couldn't quite find Volkan Ozdemir. And every time he steps in there, he's getting blasted with something. And you could see it like you could see it coming. You could see this slowly developing car crash coming for him. And yet, he still wanted to be in there. He, st- he wasn't giving up. And then you could just see him just take one that like short left hand, I believe it was, and it was like slow motion where he, go, he drops down and he goes to finish him off, like cocking back the hand. And you know the ref's not going to get there in time. And you're just going to have to take one more hard shot before it's all over. And then he's just face down on the canvas.
0: This one hurt especially bad because I had already started to give my heart to the idea of Alir Latifi going to heavyweight. Because he had talked about that in the lead up to this fight during fight week. He said he wanted to fight at heavyweight. He was open to the idea of fighting Derek Lewis. And I was like, even though it would test the allegiances of the co-main event podcast, yeah, hashtag would watch the bricklayer showing up to fight the Black Beast. Then he goes out there against the secret of the ooze. And I'm like, no, no, Latifi. And he looked undersized in Yes, this. He looked like he was just overwhelmed by Volkan Ozdemir. Made me feel like there's no way I want to watch this guy fight the mammoths of the heavyweight division. So, that was a little heartbreaker
1: for me. How do you feel about the secret of the U's now, you think? Can, can I he? mean, this is
0: as good he's looked as he's looked in a while.
1: Yeah. maybe. Year the
0: knee. <laughs> You're the knee, my friend.
1: Maybe it could also be the year of the not getting into bar fights and creating, as they might refer to on a UFC broadcast, legal troubles for yourself.
0: Can you imagine seeing Vulcan Uzdemir out at the club and being like, Yes, about to start some shit with this dude. The guy who keeps tapping his wrist, (laughs) telling me he's got
1: no time. I'm going to go up on the dance floor and be like, Hi, I'm Chad. Just see what happens. Probably be like,
0: Hey, I'm no time.
1: (laughs) If he says, Hi, I'm Vulcan, you're going to be like, Okay, this guy's fucking with me. Yeah. Now it's time to start some shit. What a smart ass. Next question this week comes to
0: us from the Cheeseburger Walrus. He writes Is it just me or is Yoel Romero versus Paulo Costa flying seriously under the radar? This fight has all the makings of an absolute banger. You are correct. Yeah, sir.
1: getting off the bus championship. Right here.
0: That's right. Undisputed getting off the bus championship on the line this weekend at UFC 241. I mean, when you so got... Wait,
1: um, f- wait, before we get into it, though, uh, I haven't heard the scheduling for this fight. Is the pose down before? Like, are they going to do that right before? Or are they going to do it like on a weigh-in day? Or what's the plan for that?
0: I mean, I think the day before the fight, we'll take him out to the beach. Okay. Muscle
1: beach. Baby oil.
0: Slather them down with some oil. And then say, get out there. Let's
1: see what you got and one of them have that little, like Rick Rude 80s like yeah. arm they're going to have like the thing with the spring between yeah, it the little like hand version of a bowflex kind of thing to you know to get you pumped up before you pose
0: you don't see a lot of those in the MMA training regimen a lot more people hitting the tire with sledgehammer yeah. than using the uh whatever that arm thing is
1: that arm thing had a a very short window of popularity too dangerous i heard yeah that was just not a Tool that any mortal man can use. Yeah, whoever is the biggest jokester in your gym is
0: going to be running up behind you and slapping you on the butt with that thing. (laughs) So people were like, "This, let's get this out of here." I mean, bringing a big tire that no one can fuck with.
1: Is the reason this one is flying under the radar because it already got made once, fell apart, and then we kind of forgot about it? We just moved on with our lives. That's probably part
0: of it. And then you got the UFC 241 lineup, which is you know stellar: Anthony Pettis versus Nate Diaz, of course, Daniel Cormier versus Steve Miocic. Derek Brunson versus Ian Heinisch is on this card. Rafael Alsunzal versus Corey Sandhagen is on this card. That's a prelim fight. There's going to be fireworks in that one. So like, if when you head up to the UFC 241 buffet, there's a lot of good stuff to choose from. And I do think that we've lost sight a little bit of Yoel Romero versus Paulo Costa. But I'm saying, bring it on.
1: Who do you like in that
0: one? Who knows, man? Who knows? I just hope nobody gets their beautiful bodies hurt.
1: The beautiful bodies, I'm not that concerned with the faces. That's something where these guys can both do some work. Yoel Romero going off as a slight favorite, at a minus one fifty favorite over Paul Costa here. Uh, I also, I mean, Joe Rogan's going to be on the broadcast here, right? Because it's a pay per view. Yes. This seems like this is a this is bait for Joe Rogan. Takes to, a lot of oxygen to run those muscles. To talk about how guys with this kind of muscles are not going to be able to have the cardio to go too long, but and yet. Both of these guys, the kind of, like, I like how Paulo Costa is the kind of guy who's going to go out there and fight like he's f- afraid that if he doesn't finish you soon enough, the bouncer might get in there and break it up. <laughs> and Yuval Romero is going to go out there and fight like, he's got all night, man. He could fuck around for two and a half rounds and then be like, all right, flying knee, knockout, whatever. I'm interested to see how those two varying approaches to the fight game work here.
0: No, me too. Yuval Romero going to act all lackadaisical. And then all of a sudden, you know, double axe handle spinning <laughs> smash and you wake up in next week, next thing you know, he's standing up against the cage with you in a hug, kissing you on the cheek, talking about how he loves you. God, that's so awkward. That's going to do it for this week's Listener Mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can check out the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. So go ahead and sign up for that because the best news is if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, that dude, Mike Perry, he's out here fighting Vicente Luque, the silent assassin, in what was unquestionably the fight of the night. Both guys earned $50,000 bonuses accordingly. After this one was over, gets his nose mashed all over one side of his face. Yeah. Maybe... The worst broken nose we've we've ever seen. Definitely on the short list of bad broken noses that we've seen in this sport.
1: Yeah, especially because I feel like other broken noses that we've seen, the really bad ones where you can tell the nose just looks like it has taken a hard turn in one direction. And you're like, like oh man, that's obviously broken. This one had that, but also seemed mashed beyond all recognition as a nose. To the point when I I don't even know... How you're supposed to? You walk into the hospital, they might be going, "Where's your nose? Is it is it somewhere in that mass of flesh? Because honestly, I can't find it, and that is disgusting." Yeah, and still made it all the way to the final horn, yeah. even after being stuck in a tough guillotine too.
0: I believe his Instagram comment of the the photo that was posted of him post nasal surgery, where he has the uh, the the like move comedy movie style bandage on his face. And he's flipping the double bird at the camera. I believe the caption there is you still can't knock me out. And that could be a verifiable fact at this point. I'm not sure Mike
1: Perry can be knocked out. He, in another Instagram post almost laments that fact. Like he, he says something about like, Oh, this damn chin of mine where maybe it would be a little easier on me if I could just, get hit with a shot that turns out the lights. And instead, I have to just keep taking it and keep piling up abuse on my own face. Although, is there a more on-brand picture than Mike Perry in the goddamn hospital with a huge bandage on his maimed nose flashing you the double birds? No. It's beautiful. It's It's beautiful, especially when you see somebody who has gone through a real crucible of a weekend to still come out being the same person that they were when they went into the weekend, yeah. like kind of the opposite of like learning valuable lessons. But there's something about the indomitable human spirit. Like the same story about, like the story about uh, that the cop told who was first on the scene when Tupac was killed, and how he, Tupac's laying there all shot up, and the guy asks him who shot you. Tupac looks up long enough just to see that it's a cop, and says "fuck you," and then dies. And you're like, well. At least you know you really went out the way you lived, and Mike Perry has a similar vibe going. He has a Tupac dying on the Las Vegas Strip vibe, yes, he and does. Some, somehow I mean that as a compliment. And he's out here flipping the bird to the crowd.
0: Also, when they start booing, when he gets don't to, you he, boo him uh, when he clinches up with Vicente Luque, which gotta gotta be on Mike Perry's side for that one.
1: Yeah, well, and what do you you're in the crowd, you're booing because there's a momentary lull in action, and then you see Mike Perry is flipping you the bird. Now you guys have kind of a relationship. Now it's not just you being dissatisfied with what you paid your ticket to see. Now there's a thing going on. There's a give and take. You might say everyone got to do their stuff. Everyone got to do their stuff. You know what I liked about this fight? Even though you
0: had two absolute killers out there. By the way, Vicente Luque defeats Mike Perry via split decision. Uh, Controversial split decision. I thought Vicente Luque deserved to win. But there's a lot of people out there on the internets thought Mike Perry should have won. Either way, close fight. Not a robbery in in either direction. The thing that I liked about this was even though you had two absolute murderers out there in the cage, it was like also a contrast of styles. Yes. Because you've got wild and crazy ass Mike Perry, who's going to dance his way to the cage with his facial tattoo uh, and and the platinum princess. And he's going to be just out there letting it all hang out. And then you got Vicente Luque, who is the exact opposite of that. No one potentially in the UFC befits their nickname more than the silent assassin, Vicente Luque, who's going to keep it tight, he's not going to say too much, and he's just going to throw unbelievably straight technical punches with murderous
1: intentions. See, the This fight, though, like you're saying, a somewhat controversial split decision. I don't know if I'd say controversial. I, I could see giving it to Vicente Luque, but especially what surprised me is that you have a final round where... Mike Perry, at one point, nose smashed to shit in a, in a guillotine choke where the blood is just being squeezed out of his face. Yeah, nasty. All this stuff. And all three judges looked at that one and said, 10-9. Yeah. 10-9 <laughs> on Sunday Luke. The same, same way they looked at the previous round where Mike Perry did a little more and said, 10-9 Mike Perry. Yeah. And it's like, that's the, the problem with the 10 point must system, right? Or at least the way that it's used so often in an right there. It's like the difference between, uh, you know, you, you landed a couple extra punches or you got a takedown at the end of the round. 10 nine for you. Other guy goes out there, breaks your fucking face. 10 nine for him.
0: Do you think that in the, uh, the judge's directions, it should say, did the round look like a slasher film broke out? Yeah. Might want to go ten eight
1: there. Or, like, the flow chart, some part of it should be, did anyone get their whole ship broke in this round? Because if so, you might want to consider a ten eight.
0: We talked a little bit on Friday about Mike Perry kind of verging into the territory of a Cowboy Cerrone or Justin Gaethje, who's one of these guys that, like, we know what he's going to do. We appreciate the gimmick. He's going to go out there and be Mike Perry all the time, and that yeah. means we're basically going to show up to watch no matter what his record is or where he is in the discussion, the title picture, what have you.
1: We appreciate it more because it's not a gimmick. It's just his fucking life. Just his moment-to-moment life.
0: Two and four now in his last six. The wins are over Paul Felder, split decision, UFC 226, and uh, Alex Oliveira, a unanimous decision in April at uh, Jacare versus Hermanson. At any point, do we start to think Mike Perry's got to put a win streak together, or is he just Teflon at this point?
1: He does need to win some of these fights. Yeah. I mean, he has been doing for a little while now the win one, lose one. And we've seen in the UFC, if we like you enough, you're exciting enough, you're fun enough to have around, you can do that for a long time. You can win one, lose one. It's when the losses start stacking up. But if you want to really be a guy in this division, you need to win more of these, and this one actually, I thought we saw a little bit more discipline Mike Perry. There were moments in there where it was like, okay, yeah. he's, he's actually trying to do something here rather than just trying to go out there and knock somebody's head off with every single exchange. And so I thought there were some hopeful signs here, but then that's a tough fight. Vicente Luque is a tough fight for him, especially style-wise. Like, that's a guy, even a more disciplined Mike Perry is still going to be the less disciplined fighter in a fight with Vicente Luque.
0: Yeah, Vicente Luque, by contrast to Perry, a winner of six in a row now. He had the loss to Leon Edwards back in March of 2017. I believe he has won 10 of his last 11, all told. So he is on a real tear here, uh in the welterweight division and a guy who, like I said, isn't going to talk all that much. And I, and I feel like because of that, like runs the risk of getting lost in the shuffle in this like stock lock, stock full UFC roster of over 500 fighters. But at the same time, if you actually watch him on fight night, like this guy is a person that you want to watch do the damn thing.
1: And yet, do you think you can be a silent assassin in the UFC welterweight division right now? I mean, if you're the silent assassin, you got to win,
0: like, ten fights in a row. Yes. If you could do the chicken dance and have a tattoo on your face, then it's then you can go two and four.
1: The chicken dance.
0: Remember when he did that chicken dance? Not at this fight, but, like, one recently. Okay. I'm thinking like of Like, when I say the chicken dance, yeah. Mike like Perry did chicken. a literal yeah. chicken yeah. dance. Not like
1: the wedding chicken dance. No.
0: I'm talking okay. about Mike Perry acted like a
1: chicken. Like the red rooster. Yes. Kind of. Yeah. Okay, that's a different thing. Although, I don't know. That's one where, uh, I don't... I don't recommend other fighters really try that one. Same with the face tattoo, actually, now that I'm thinking. You know, let's let Mike Perry's gimmick stay with Mike Perry. I don't know if anybody else even is about that life, to be honest with you. But I do wonder, a guy who just goes out there, puts in really good performances, wins fights, and then makes himself easy to kind of forget about. It's not like any of the promotional apparatus right now is geared toward stopping that from happening.
0: I am looking at the UFC welterweight rankings at okay. the moment. Right. Where do you think Vicente Luque is? Twelve. Would you believe it if I told you he is not on there? I guess I'd believe that. He's not on there, unless I missed him.
1: Well, there's only like 15 names on there. i hope you'd be able to spot him if he's on there.
0: So that seems like an oversight to me.
1: Well, Mike Perry's not on the body there, is of work?
0: No, but Mike Perry hasn't won 10 of his last 11 damn
1: fights. That's one of the problems, though, with being like, we're like, okay, we're going to find a fun fight for you, Vicente Luca. You're going to fight Mike Perry. Everybody will tune in to watch Mike Perry. But if you beat him and then you're going, how did that help me in the rankings? Honestly, I'm surprised. Now I'm looking at the rankings. I'm surprised your boy Izzy Dos Santos is out here winning one fight after another. He's 13. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough out there, man. Hard. Hard out here in the welterweight rankings. Meanwhile, Darren Till, six. Yep. Okay. Six. If you say so.
0: All right, Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week?
1: Jen, can we just stop asking people who train with Greg Hardy if he's a nice guy? <laughs> Is that a thing that's happening a lot? Yeah, over and over again. And... For one thing, what do we expect them to say? Especially like women who train uh, with Greg Hardy or train at the same gym. What do you expect them to say? If, even if they're like, "I think Greg Hardy is a dick," they're not going to say that. They're not going to tell you that, right? It's they, ATT too, right? Right. I mean, there's numerous
0: individuals at ATT that seem hard to like, and yet everybody out there is going to be like, that's my, "That's my brother. That's my yeah. training partner. We're in the yeah, gym all the guy. time. I'm going to see him tomorrow. So I'm going to." So this is. <laughs> Going to be fairly complimentary here.
1: Also, what do you think you're telling us when you like? Do you think that this is like what Greg Hardy was accused of uh, being a poor coworker, not getting along, not playing well with others? That was never the thing. It and like don't haven't we seen by now somebody could be to you coming off as you know a nice guy, nice person, and they could also be doing terrible shit to somebody else. That's right. Those things are not impossible to imagine that they could exist. Side by side. I just don't know what we're even hoping to accomplish by continuing to push that narrative. As if, like, hey, he comes into the gym and he is not even a snarling animal striking out viciously at everyone within arm's reach. Never even seen him throw a, a bystander through a plate glass window. Super nice guy. Fucking kidding me? This is, this is pointless. I don't, it, it is the laziest, like, image rehabilitation campaign I can imagine. Knock it off. Fucking kidding me. You know what
0: Valentina Shevchenko's most impressive feat of the weekend was, Ben? What's that? It's when they started interviewing her and she's out here busting out paragraph-long quotes in Spanish and English, neither of which are her first language. So, like... Say what you want to about the significant strikes, but are you fucking kidding me? Valentina Shevchenko's out here basically doing her post-fight interview, where some people can't even do it in English. Like, some (laughs) Americans cannot do the post-fight interview in English. You just fought 25 damn minutes. You're tired. You're discombobulated. You've been punched in the face. Well, maybe not in this case, but, like, you've been punched in the face. Valentina Shevchenko essentially three languages deep in this post-fight interview and knocking it out of the park in all three of them. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Multilingual is the female bantamweight champion.
1: Oh, wow. Fucking kidding me. you fucking kidding me. Chad went up full Mike Goldberg on us.
0: That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back. With round... Oh, that was round number one.
1: That was round number one. Speaking
0: of being discombobulated. Yeah. We'll be right back. In English. With round number two. I'm only trying to do one language out here.
1: Chad, you know what happened August 20th, 2016? Uh it was my anniversary. You lying.
0: No, it's August 20th, it's my anniversary.
1: Well, oh, okay. Now you made an asshole of me. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I'll tell you what happened. Of consequence. You don't need any make
0: making an asshole out of you. August.
1: <laughs> August 20th, 2016. The last time Nate Diaz set foot in the UFC octagon. He's
0: back.
1: Lost a majority decision to Conor McGregor that night at UFC 202, and then just kind of melted away into the, the Stockton sunset. And now here we are, nearly three years later, Nate Diaz coming back to fight Anthony Pettis at UFC 241. The exact, one of those fights that we talk about where if you're just Putting together fun stuff on the UFC video game. This is a pairing that you'd come up with. And now we're going to get it in real life. And I, for one, am hyped.
0: What's your hype level? Pretty hyped. Although there's a lot of unknowns here, right? You got your 34-year-old Nate Diaz. You're talking about how the last time he fought was August 20th, 2016. He fought twice that year. uh, And then only once each year since 2013. So we have not seen an enormous body of work from Nathan Donald Diaz as of late. So I don't know how it's going to be, man, coming off the bench to go out here and fight Anthony Pettis, uh, who at the very least has been a, a little bit more busy, taking on Stephen Thompson back in March, getting the surprise KO right there before the close of the second round. I'm interested to see which version of Nate Diaz we get or how he looks because leading up to this fight, he's given every impression that ain't nothing changed. I mean, you watch the interview he did with Brett Okamoto here that just came out this week and you're like yep that's Nate Diaz he's out here doing all that Nate Diaz stuff answering every question in perfect Nate Diaz fashion so i'm i'm wondering if he's going to bring the you know the the exciting diaz volume striking skill set to the cage or if we're going to watch this fight and be like that's definitely a man in his mid 30s
1: the thing to me, I was surprised when I looked up the betting odds to see us as close as it is. Anthony Pettis, a slight favorite. I think minus 130 is what I saw for Anthony Pettis. Nate Diaz going off at about plus 110. Because I feel like if Anthony Pettis fights a smart fight here for three rounds, I feel like he should beat Nate Diaz just by what they both bring to the table. I think if you if you're able to control the distance against Nate Diaz and really use the kicks and, and keep him where you want him, I think that Anthony Pettis ought to be able to beat him. I don't think he'll finish him, but I think that you ought to be able to win a decision over him. Yeah. But then the thing is, as we've seen, the Diaz brothers excel at getting people to fight their fight.
0: Yes, they do. That's the thing. You Just look at the stand-up games. Anthony Pettis is probably a little bit more diverse with what he likes to do. He's more diverse than a lot of people in what they like to do on the feet. Diaz is going to come out here and box you up, but they have this uncanny ability with that like, pressure boxing style to turn fights into the kind of fight that a Diaz brother can win. So the question is going to be, can Anthony Pettis avoid that?
1: If you just go out there and kick the shit out of his legs in the first round, kick him to the body, you don't even have the usual problem that you do as a a kicker when up against the guy with a really good ground game, because the Diaz brothers seem kind of philosophically opposed to taking people down.
0: Even though it's arguably their biggest strength. Yes. Remember when Nate, of, uh, when Nick Diaz fought uh, Paul Daly? I think and it was. I think it was the Paul Daley fight in Force where like they're having this absolute slugfest, and you're like, "Wow, this is awesome!" And then like the moment it goes to the ground, Nick Diaz tapped him out. No, is that right? No, Who did he he, tap he, out? he
1: knocked him out. But uh, I I thought you were going to talk about his fight with uh, Carlos Condit where he's trying to follow Carlos Conant around all night, trying to land punches and get him into a brawl, and Carlos Conant just won't do it. And then in, like, the fifth round, he takes him down immediately gets on his back and then just kind of runs out of time. You're like, you know what? That might have been a smart thing to do in round one. But you just, you don't have it in you to initiate that exchange. Like, for you, the ground game is something that you're super good at, but that other people have to decide they want it there before you'll consent to beat them there. And it surprises me every time, but... I mean, I guess Nate Diaz, like you said, the pressure boxing style, you can crowd a kicker sometimes and just keep coming at him as long as you don't mind getting the, the, you know, taking those thumps on the leg and and into the body that he's inevitably going to have to take at some point in this fight. But it seems to me like if Anthony Pettis probably spent the weeks before this fight being told over and over again not to go out there and do the Nate Diaz stuff. Don't don't try to out Diaz him. Even though that is kind of what we we the fans are hoping for, aren't we? We're hoping for because isn't this how Anthony Pettis described the he and his boys getting into a nightclub tiff with the the Diaz brothers where he was like, "Well, their family don't play and my family don't play." And so you know, we got ourselves into a bit of a scuffle. And so it's like, that's what we're hoping for out of this fight. But if you're in Anthony Pettis' corner, don't you think you spent weeks now telling him, let's not do that? Yes. How about we go out there and we win the fight?
0: Yes. It's kind of, you, you just saying that kind of makes me wish this was a tag team match. Like we could get <laughs> Anthony and Young Surge out there. saying Surge
1: is a little bit out of his depth weight wise here.
0: Yeah, but still, it'd be fun when you got Nick and Nate across the, the ring.
1: Like, let young Serge have a bicycle chain.
0: Yeah. No, okay. I'm in favor of that. Yeah. The question is, what you are going to do when Nate, Diaz, or when Nate Diaz flips you the bird and slaps you in the face? Because so that you... is a thing that 100% is going to happen. Yeah. I hope that Sergio Pettis has been flipping Anthony Pettis the bird and slapping him in the face for six weeks. <laughs> Dude Rufus has been slapping him in the
1: face. The training is every morning he gets up, he gets out of bed while he's still groggy. You run up, you slap him in the face, you put the bird right there in his face, and then he just has to control himself.
0: Because we have seen Nate Diaz uh, work this magic against other people. We've seen both Diaz brothers entice people into this fight that they want to have. And oftentimes it happens before they even get in there. Yes. Oftentimes it happens in the pre-fight. So that is maybe the biggest question about what's going to happen here.
1: If Nate Diaz goes out there and wins this fight, do you just immediately book uh McGregor Diaz three?
0: Don't you think that's in the back pocket no matter what happens?
1: I think it's tougher to justify if he goes like if he goes out there and Anthony Pettis just makes him look awful. I think it's a little tougher to sell it as a, a huge money fight.
0: That might be true. I just feel like you could both those guys could string together fifteen losses in a row. And then the UFC could be like, all right, we're doing McGregor versus Diaz 3. And everybody would sigh a long sigh and then be like, fine, send me location.
1: I mean, it would be, I think, better to do that fight, win or lose, I guess, for Nate Diaz, than a mcgregor Medoff rematch. Just because, A, that one isn't going to go any different the second time around, and B... He clearly has not done anything in the interim to make his case for a title shot. You throw him in there for a third fight with Diaz, it's like, all right, has the rubber match thing. We'll kind of figure that one out. Plus, neither one of them was really knocking on the door of a title at the moment anyway, so might as well have some fun.
0: Yeah. Now I feel like I have to go back and watch Nick Diaz against Paul Daly.
1: That's a hell of a fight. I mean, there is no ground game aspect to it, really. Not not at all? Not really? I wonder what I'm thinking of. See, this is the problem with the Swiss cheese brain. That, but then Nick, I have Nick Diaz Paul Daly is one of my consistent picks for the, one of the best one round fights ever because it goes almost a full round and it's just non-stop chaos I was there for that one and it was just like one of those fights where when it's over you feel like did I did I even take a breath
0: was this a fever dream yeah
1: my heart is pounding and I and all I did was sit in a chair nearby
0: you're gonna take Anthony Pettis by unanimous decision here is that what you think the most likely outcome is
1: if Anthony Pettis got the training in, the slap training. The, the slap and the Stockton Hey Buddy in the Face training, then yes, I say Anthony Pettis would win a decision here.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I guess I'm inclined to agree with you. And again, just to return to my original point, part of it is I just have no idea what to expect from a guy we haven't seen in so long. Even though we all expect him to show up and do the thing that we exactly know that we he's going to do. Yeah. We'll find out Saturday night. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, your 40-year-old heavyweight champion, Daniel Ryan Cormier, rolls in to UFC 241 for a rematch with the former champion... Stepe Miocic. This would be Cormier's second successful heavyweight championship title defense if he's able to win, which, as everyone knows, is generally about as far as heavyweight title defenses go. Yep. I feel like our hearts are already planning ahead for what might happen if Daniel Cormier wins this. Because you got Big Franny and Ganu out there. Uh, slinking around trying to get himself into a main event heavyweight title fight. And I think we can all agree that Cormier versus Nganou would be fun as hell. You got John Jones out there lording over the light heavyweight division. But every now and then continuing to tease us with the idea that if the money's right, he and DC will both show up for another fight between the two of them. And in many ways, if Stipe Miocic wins this fight, I feel like it just kind of returns the heavyweight division to the status quo. Should be we be more worried about the prospect of a Stipe Miocic victory?
1: You know, somebody was asking me in the mailbag for the Athletics, what ha- You know, if Daniel Cormier wins again against Stipe, does he become the greatest UFC heavyweight champion ever? Which was basically the title that we were willing to give to Stipe, if for no other reason than just statistical. Dominance that he had broken the record for the most consecutive heavyweight title offenses that he strung together three three if you're wondering that very you know on paper unimpressive record but the one that had stood for a really long time for a myriad collection of wild reasons and then I you know when you think about it if Daniel Cormier beats Stipe Stipe Miocic his heavyweight title wins will be Stipe Miocic Derek Lewis, Steepy Which it's two guys. And one of them, it was the fight that you made just because you felt like, well, this is a safe one. He won't lose this one, and it allows us to get a heavyweight title fight in, and people seem to like Derek Lewis because of the hot balls thing, so go ahead. And that's not that impressive, really, when you think about it. And yet, if you know you only beat two guys, but one of them was the greatest. And you beat him twice? That does have to count for something, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, especially the way that first fight went, where it looked like, in the early going, Stipe was bullying him around a little bit. The size looked like it was gonna be an issue, but then Cormier threw like a genuinely really smart and really kind of tricky tactical plan. Yeah. Managed to land that one clean blow, drop Stipe, and finish him off there. And so it's like it's not like a lucky punch. It's not like you just, like, closed your eyes and you threw a punch and lo and behold, the guy ends up on the floor. It was actually a thing that you were setting up and that you got him to kind of walk into in a way. And yet it also felt like if you take that one away, if he adjusts for that, do you have another thing that you can trick him right. with? Because physically he looked like he might be about to really take it to you.
0: Yeah, that's the thing that worries me because that was the opposite of a lucky punch. You outsmarted the guy. You outstrategized outstr- him. You tricked Steve Miocic into thinking he was okay to fight you in the clinch, and then bang, zoom to the moon, you knocked him out. You're not probably going to trick him again. Well, not with that. You might trick him with something else. That's true. You're not going to probably trick him with the same trick again. So that is the million-dollar question here. Like, if Daniel Cormier and Steve Miocic get in a mixed martial arts fight again, what happens here? And... You're right that it seemed like for the first couple minutes of their initial meeting that my thought as it was happening was like, oh, Stipe Miocic is just too big for him. He was bullying him against a cage. Uh, He was doing all of his Stipe Miocic big guy stuff. And in the end, I don't know how much of that was Daniel Cormier kind of... Utilizing his own game plan, trying to sucker Miocic into a false sense of security, so that he would fight him in the place where Cormier was strongest, and how much of it was just Steve Miocic being way too big. Cormier has never lost at heavyweight, so he's pretty good there. But at the same time, like, yeah, man, that's a big concern. If if basically what happened in the first fight was that we out game planned him, Steve Miocic is pretty smart, pretty high fight IQ. We've seen the proof in the pudding, and that. During his title reign, he's not going to fall for that same trick again. What happens if this if it's just skill against skill, body against body?
1: I mean, it really is, though. Like, if Daniel Cormier goes out there and beat, beats him again, regardless of whether it seems like a trick or right. whether it seems like he's just kind of figured out something about him. I mean, I'm not trying
0: to him. take anything away from Cormier. To me, it's all the more impressive yes. that the way he beat Miocic was uh, by uh, bamboozling him in Right.
1: I mean, it's like the same... We got really excited about uh, Jorge Masvidal's win over Ben Askren when it's like, that is kind of a trick, what you're going to do. Like, you've just scouted him well, you know what he's going to do, and you have the balls to go in there and try it, and you're able physically to pull it off. And it's not so different with the Daniel Cormier-Stipe thing, just that this trick was a little longer and unfolding. But if you figure out some other way, and you go out there and you beat him again, then that to me, like, I do think, then you'll start to look at it and you're like, like you said, he's never been beaten at heavyweight. Like... And John Jones doesn't seem like he's super eager to come up to heavyweight and try Daniel Cormier there. And I, I don't know. It would be really curious. He beats Stipe Mujicic and then sticks to his guns and says, all right, that's it. Now I'm really done. Then I'm going to go coach wrestling and do commentary and that's it. And this is the legacy I leave behind. And how do you make an argument for somebody else as the greatest UFC heavyweight when, if you're going to be like, who is it? Is it Stipe? Because... Cormier beat him twice, yeah. went 2-0 against him. Yeah. Uh, is it that like Kane Velasquez or somebody? Uh, you know, like we saw C-level Kane give way to Mexico City Kane and yeah. then never quite got back. So, I don't know. And yet, if Stipe does go out there and beats Daniel Cormier, I feel like everybody's going to heave a giant sigh, like you said, and then say, rubber match. I guess we got to. And yet, I don't feel like there would be a ton of enthusiasm for it.
0: No, I agree. Like one of the reasons why the heart the heart is with Cormier here is that the world seems a lot funner if he's the UFC heavyweight champion. Will he walk away and retire if he beats Miocic a second time? Uh, I don't know. But there's some enticing stuff out for him out there for him in the wake of this. If he's still the champion, it seems like he's going to get some uh, some lucrative offers. I have kind of have a hard time believing that he would walk away, even though. Uh, he seems like the kind of guy who's not going to do this forever. And he seems like the kind of guy who, uh, is going to stick to his guns about retirement, but like he's a lifelong competitor. He has talked in the past, I think about getting super depressed when he didn't really have something in his life that would fill that competitive need. And if they're telling you, they're going to pay you a bunch of money to fight Francis and or they're telling you that they're going to pay you a bunch of money to fight John Jones and you still got that belt. I think that's hard to say no to. Yeah, if I'm Daniel Cormier, but then again, like that's just conjecture. I don't have any idea what's going on in his life or how he's feeling or anything like that. Maybe he would be just as happy to walk away on top.
1: Yeah, uh, there's also the uh, the specter of Big Franny and Ganu, who yeah. you mentioned early on. Yeah. Now, if Daniel Cormier were to beat Stipe and feel like, okay, I feel like I'm pretty good about every th- all the money I've made and my future prospects here. I feel like I could quit fighting. But the UFC went to him and they said, what about Ngannou next, though? We feel like we could promote the hell out of that fight and there might be some good money in it for you. Plus, we heard the way Daniel Pormier talked about Francis Engano when he was asked about him fairly recently, and he made that remark where he's like, I know everybody gets excited about knockout artists, but you guys act like you forgot what happened against Stipe, as if the guy suddenly got to be a much better wrestler since then, when there's no evidence to suggest that that is the case. That kind of makes you think that Similar to the way they talked him into the Derrick Lewis fight, being like, hey, we know we're all kind of waiting on this Brock Lesnar payday to come through. In the meantime, how about you just go out there and take this one, which, for your skill set, is kind of a gimme.
0: Yeah, and on top of all that, Francis Ngannou just knocked out your best friend not too long ago. I can see Cormier sticking around for that, man. I also think it's a dangerous fight. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, we've seen what Francis Ngannou can do on the feet. Like Clearly, Daniel Cormier, a near-peerless wrestler, in the heavyweight division, uh, but at the same time doesn't go about the wrestling the exact same way as a guy like Miocic did. And, you know, to for Daniel Cormier to take down Francis Ngannou, I think he would have to put himself in danger a little bit. And we've seen Daniel Cormier get punched before. We saw him get knocked a little silly by Anthony Johnson uh, before he came back to win that fight. So that's... Hashtag would watch. man. It's hard for me to think of a matchup That I would be more hyped about, honestly, than if you were going to do Francis Ngannou versus Daniel Cormier. And see, that
1: is the thing, too, is that you'd be able to tell him, like, hey, here's one that people will be excited about. But then for Daniel Cormier, like, it might be telling him, basically, hey, there's an ATM around the corner. Uh, Go in there. Just punch in this code we give you. And nine times out of ten... It just, it'll spit out a whole bunch of money at you, and all you have to do is open up this big bag and catch the money in there, and then you go on your merry way. Uh, yes, one time out of ten, uh, a giant sledgehammer just comes flying out and hits you right square in the forehead. <laughs> but that's rare. Probably what's going to happen is the money thing. Like, just bunch of money for you. Yeah. Small risk of sledgehammer. It's for your Cormier. Probably hard to say no to that, especially when you're looking at, okay, when you start looking at everyone could be the last one, you're at that stage in your career, and you're thinking about finances and everything, and you're going, well, it would be nice to, like, here is one extra year of vacations you get to take without having to worry about the money.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's those two fights out there are really hard to say no to. But maybe that's just the fan in me talking because those are two fights that I really want to see.
1: The other thing I've heard from people and leading up to this one is that it seems a lot of people feel like, hey, where is the UFC doing any promo for this one? Or are they just kind of hoping that we all know about it?
0: Well, again, like before fight week these days, it's hard, man, because you got all these different fighting events. you got to try to sell Shevchenko versus Carmouche, and you got to try to sell every other event that you got. So, like, really the window is fight week to well, sell these
1: And you're going to squeeze in your video packages during those other events, but if people aren't watching, like if people are not sticking around on ESPN Plus to watch UFC Uruguay, which you can understand how even an ardent fight fan might be like, oh, catch the highlights tomorrow, then they're going to miss all those promo pieces. Like, that's the problem with counting on those as your, like, the, the two weekends worth of events that you had on, like, ESPN and then ESPN Plus to try to generate some hype for this were both events that people probably felt like, oh, I could record it and catch it later or just miss it entirely. Yeah, And so then they don't see your hype pieces.
0: I mean, I tell you what, we cover the sport for our jobs, and I, I feel like these fights always creep up on me. Every single time I'm like, Cormier versus Miacic is next week? Damn. So I can only imagine how it is if you're not paying really, really close attention.
1: Yeah, if you have an actual job that you have to think about.
0: Let's do uh just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here. Ben, this week I'm just saying... Is Jorge Masvidal going to mess around and talk himself into a fight he doesn't want? Because we know he doesn't really want this uh, Leon Edwards fight. Man, he wants something bigger. He's got bigger designs in mind. And yet, he can't help himself from spewing hot fire every time somebody asks him about this fight. Is he going to make this thing so contentious that this is the fight the UFC insists on? I'm just saying. I'm just
1: saying. See, I was thinking about doing my uh, Just Saying stuff about how Jorge Masvidal went down there to Uruguay. I don't know if you heard announcer Joe Martinez say it, but he says it's just exactly like I do. And what ends up happening is everybody's talking about Jorge Masvidal afterwards. Didn't even fight. Just went down there in some fancy duds. Right. Shouted into the camera a little bit and... Everybody's talking about him afterwards.
0: Yeah, which, uh, you know, from a PR standpoint is a, a smart move. You got this kind of low-profile fight, toss the, the, the media a big stake in the form of a Jorge Masvidal sit-down.
1: Well, yeah, and, and oh, he's got to go down there. I mean, if we're going to do a show where Mike Perry has to go to exotic locales that he does not understand and do a show... Jorge Masvidal is a pretty good guest star to have on there.
0: How about during the uh, Mike Perry travel show? We're just constantly running into Jorge Masvidal. Like while Mike Perry is narrating the show and walking through the casino, who do we see at the baccarat table? Jorge Masvidal.
1: <laughs> hey, imagine seeing you here, uh, Chad. My just saying that, stuff. Wait, that
0: wasn't even your just saying stuff. No,
1: that was going to be my just saying. stuff. You got stuff. a different one. Man. I got. A, I got a different one. Calling Audible. Um, the, uh, we mentioned on the power hour on Friday, we were talking about the bare knuckle thing. If there is room in the market for another bare knuckle promotion, as Ken Shamrock hopes that there is. And I was like, I think there might actually be a bare knuckle FC event this weekend and nobody's talking about it, which lets you know maybe where the, you know, novelty level has fallen to. I was right. There was a bare knuckle FC event this weekend and there was a knockout. You can see it on the social medias. This is BKFC seven at the Mississippi Coast Coliseum in Biloxi, Mississippi. Granddaddy of them all. Um, Caleb Harris and John, Jonathan Vistante. Nailed it. Yep. And one punch KO uh, by Harris, I believe, just drops Vistante face down. And you can see in the video, I, I've, I retweeted it on social media, where the referee sees him face down, like dropped hard, and immediately begins motioning frantically for the cage side doctor. Motion several times, in fact, only to then look up and find that no cage side doctor has arrived. And then, eventually, we see an old man, like in the sport coat or like the cage side doctor kind of outfit, leisurely stroll up, as if, oh, oh, what's what's going on here? I happen to be a doctor. Like if they had, is some- there a doctor in the if house? They had summoned that guy from the crowd. <laughs> I think he might have gotten there faster. Just not that concerned at all. I'm just saying, if I'm gonna fight in a bare-knuckle boxing event in Biloxi, Mississippi, at least get a doctor who is going to treat this with the seriousness it deserves. When the referee, is fr- the guy who's closest to the knockout, is frantically waving for a medical professional to get in there right now, put a little pep in your step, man. I'm just saying. Yeah. You don't have that much to do. Looks it's like, it's like, like time is of the essence here. Just saying.
0: Just saying. That was the second crazy knockout in a row at that BKFC yes. event. Because the dude got his night mouthpiece knocked out, I believe, in the fight right before that.
1: Yeah, a lot of one-punch KO action going on there. Guess that's what you're going to get when
0: nobody's wearing gloves. You guess so. In any case, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to tell you all the stuff that happened at Cormier versus Miocic 2. And then I guess we will look ahead to fight night Andrage versus Zhang, which is going down, at least scheduled to go down in China, uh, on August 31st.
1: What is that? What day is that? Saturday? Next Saturday?
0: It's, uh, well, now you're asking me. No, it's, in, so this week is the 17th. Then you got the, uh, then it's two weeks. Okay. So we might end up, uh, focusing on something else next week. That one's
1: at the Shenzhen Universidade Sports Center Arena.
0: I understand there's some social unrest over there right now, though, so we're going to have to see how this plays out. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. I'm saying you might want to bring your own doctor. Because if you told me, hey, man, the doctor that this bare-knuckle fighting promoter got to come be the the ringside uh, uh, physician, maybe not the, like, maybe not... In the uh,
1: Texas monthly magazine issue of the top doctors in the region I would believe that uh, it's also a kind of a sweet old school fight sports move to roll in there and be like this is my trainer, Gus and this is my personal physician Dr. Camperino
0: Dr. Camperino has been treating me
1: for years with tinctures and various yeah. uh, supplements please don't ask about the giant scar that runs from his forehead to his chin elixirs, he mixes up my elixirs, very sensitive about the guy.